Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. And we're back. This is 101 Part-Time Jobs. I just did a interview with Sam Russo, an extremely interesting man from Cambridgeshire who has been 
a staple of my life for the last decade. He writes incredible songs and he's just about to put out his new album, Back to the Party, on the 27th of March. We talked about how his songwriting is informed by his work life and vice versa. And we got down to the nitty gritty. We talked about how he sometimes thinks about Corey Taylor from Slipknot wanting to listen to Bell and Sebastian and eat crudite rather than headbang in front of a few thousand people. We talked about his love for the whole catalogue of The Descendants, how nostalgia is a wonderful thing, Gasser Anthem, The Clash, being too punk for folk and too folk for punk, and Red Scare Industries, which is the label that he's about to release the new album, Back to the Party, on 27th of March on. So... Here it is. I had a lovely chat. It's longer than usual. I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Sam, is this the earliest that we've hung out? No, not by a long shot. It's the earliest that you've been in any way sentient when we've hung out. But You've brought a book. <laughs> I had to make a list because I'm old and I forget things and there's a lot to remember. Okay, and it's a list of... Jobs that you've had? Yeah, well, not not a comprehensive list. I feel like I had to edit myself a little bit. But yeah, there's a list here of, uh, of jobs I've had. You, um, I, I, I feel like I can't really wait to say this, but, you, but um, we spoke yesterday. Yeah. And uh, we arranged this bit last minute. And you said, well, I've just got a uh, potential new job as a... <laughs> well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I applied for a job <laughs> as a... Uh, well, when I applied for the job, it said marital aid worker. So it was like... I had no idea what that meant, no so I looked up. No psychology degree needed. Exactly. I had to Google, what exactly is a marital aid? And I found out, oh, it's it's a dildo. So that led me to believe, obviously, that I'd be selling dildos. So I went to the website and found that it's um, a copywriting job for uh, a sex toy company. Copywriting? <laughs> yeah, creative copywriting. So You're a good writer. We all know that. I... Yeah, I don't know. I try. You, you, you would never admit it. Oh, yeah, you're right. I would never admit. It. Apart from if they ask me at the job interview, if they say, "Are oh, you a good writer?" <laughs> I will reflexively say, "Yes, I'm a good writer." Did you have to write a cover letter? I had to write a cover letter and give them my CV, which was highly edited. And then I had to. The first stage of the interview process was to write ten tips for unforgettable foreplay, and to rewrite two product descriptions. I feel like you're one of the more sexual people that I know. <laughs> Thank you. I think uh, I hope that comes across in my uh, in my article. No, well, you, you're, a, you're, um, you're a man who's lived. Uh, sure, <laughs> sure. Uh, so yeah. you had to write five five tips. Ten. Ten tips in 500 words. It was agony with, you know, product links and like just the sell, 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 basically. So it was nothing earnest or even remotely true. It wasn't like, I mean, you know, foreplay is all about being in the moment and intimacy. And I couldn't write that. I had to write, buy all these dildos, cover yourself in lube and launch yourself up someone's bum. Um, So (laughs) that's basically where I went. It must have taken you an afternoon or at least a you know a good few hours it took to... me way longer than i thought it was going to i sought a little help from people who are probably far more worldly than myself uh, did a little bit of research with a few people naming no names and uh got some good feedback got some good bedrock and then i went to town and just tried to flesh it out and it took a really long time it probably took me i don't know four or five hours on a sunday did you start the application thinking, oh, oh, and, and then realised after a couple of hours, this is a job, this is business? 
I wish your listeners could have seen your face when you did that. <laughs> but um, no, Euro, Euro trash. Did your did your dad watch Euro trash? Yeah, he certainly did. I'm so ashamed of <laughs> so my. So did I from behind the couch. <laughs> That's the place I used to watch all horror movies I just, and dirty movies from behind the couch. I just, <laughs> I just read that it took. Um, I think I'm right in saying this. So apologies if not. Mm. It took. It cost four hundred thousand pounds for each Euro Trash episode to you be made, have to be and it was made to look low budget. That's insane. That was the that was nineties television. That is unbelievable because it looked like garbage. It looked right, like right. old lost VHS tapes, like <laughs> looked like a, a sick form green screen. <laughs> yeah, it really did. I'd, if I had a TV, that's exactly what I'd have loved to have done. You have to pay for that quality, I guess, Dolly Parton style. But no, to answer your question, I applied it in earnest. I applied myself uh, thinking, you know, this is a writing job just like any other writing job and it might be a bit um, a bit soulless, but uh, absolutely worth a stab. So, yeah, just went for it. Did you find out how much they were charging or, you know, paying? for it, uh, Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a particularly well-paid job for a writer. I guess it's 23 grand a year. Okay. Uh, but I, again, like the details are really sketchy in the advert. So I don't know if it's full, it says full-time slash part-time, but it doesn't give you a part-time equivalent. So I was just like, I'll go for it. Who cares? Work from home? Do you think uh, the offices well, I, I would very much wall, hope so, yeah. Wall-to-wall duvets? Well, yeah, I think, do you know what I think would be a little bit unnerving would be like any kind of work in the adult industry, I think it desensitizes you a little bit. And it's probably like if you're sitting in a an office in a warehouse surrounded by reams of dildos, I bet it's uh, I bet it's pretty bleak after a while. So I would hope there's some working from home and I'm hoping I can write on the road and stuff. And you get that from the Louis Theroux episodes where, where, where you go to those those houses of entertainment. <laughs> yeah, houses um, of entertainment. And, and yeah. it's bad because we laugh now. But, you know, get 10 minutes into an episode like that, you you are... Oh yeah, it's you all business, the stark yeah. reality of it. Yeah, yeah, it's awful. And I think you know anything that uh, you know kind of pummels you from all angles that is uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Anything that kind of hits you from all sides that is very um, you know overly sexual or uh, slightly overwhelming in any way, you desensitize really quick to it. And I would be really keen not to uh, you know not to feel like a scumbag all the time. <laughs> so creative copy. Yeah. Have you applied for many other copywriter jobs? Yeah, bits. I kind of, um, because I write a lot, Whether you know, I write a lot of short fiction. And you've got an English degree? I've got a journalism degree. Okay, even more so. Yeah, I did journalism and investigations. So I'm kind of equipped in a way to do that kind of stuff. But I love writing fiction. I love writing short fiction. I do that the most nowadays. Um, I don't really write for money anymore. Uh, I have a sort of different track for work. So I'm trying to get back into it. I'm trying to put together a decent portfolio, trying to do a bit of... um, yeah, a bit, a bit with that talent. Are you quite disciplined when, uh, when it comes to to writing? Yeah, I think you have to be. That's one thing that appeals to me most about writing is that once you sort of sit down and start writing, whether it's you know by hand or a computer or wherever you are, it has to take one hundred percent of your focus. I think, and the discipline of drafting is something I've always absolutely loved. You know, going back to something and tweaking and refining and just hitting it until it's absolutely perfect. I love that. Um, it, I find it way more satisfying than a lot of stuff I do in music that's similar. Um, but it is exactly you hit it on hit the nail on the head. It is the discipline of it going back that I really like. Is there a crossover between writing songs, the lyrics that you write, and those short stories? Are there some some tales, some um, arching, some <laughs> arching resolve? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a way, I like writing narrative songs. Um, I've been doing it less lately. I think I'm trying to expand into into sort of new territory a little bit. But when I write. 
if I write fiction, I tend to start in the same way as if I write a song. I'll start with a moment or an idea or a feeling and then kind of build narrative around that rather than having a storyline in advance. That tends to be the way I do it. What else is on the list? Oh, man. I think the, fir- the first job, I- the first thing I ever did for money was a paper round like everyone else. Um, but I was really keen to earn more money because the paper, paper round played, paid nothing. So I said to the guy, is there anything else I can do? And he put me to work in the news agent doing everything I could, basically. So I packed pet food was my main thing because they used to sell. It was a really small village in the middle of nowhere. So they had to sell small like sandwich bags of pet food to people who couldn't you know, carry huge bags of pet food home or whatever. It was mostly old people and you know people living on their own. So I packed pet food for ages and it was a pretty uh, hard and fast trip into the world of work. Obviously, the paper round's awful. You spend your whole time in your adolescence walking around fantasizing about the people that live in the houses and being a weirdo and a creep. And then I'd go back and just pack stinky, horrible pet food for hours with cats jumping on my head and scratching me and stuff. There were cats in the... Oh, they had cats everywhere, man. Cats everywhere. Literally, like, you'd be packing pet food and there'd be one on your shoulder. Um, and I went from that to working in a window factory, uh, which was my first proper on-the-books job. And I was, uh, my, my, I didn't have a job title, but it was my job to break all the defective windows. Get out. <laughs> yeah, so any windows that weren't made perfectly that you could sell or whatever, I'd either take the frames and, and like launch them against the floor and smash the corners and take them apart and put them in a skip, or I'd get the glass and I'd have the glass hammer and I'd have to whack the side and shatter it and then sweep it all into a pile and chuck it in a skip. I don't know where it went, probably landfill, which I know is grim as hell, but we would just I would just smash these windows to shit, put them in a skip, and they would go. And that was it. I'd fill, have to fill the skip throughout the course of the week. How, long, it, how long were you there? Oh, man. Um, four months, maybe five months. And it was brutal. It was really punishing. It was like 12-hour days, uh, and I'd do Saturday and Sunday most of the time. Uh, there was just like constant fights. There was a couple of guys there who had some serious beef, like a family thing going on. Every time they caught each other's eye, they would just go at it. Uh, one this day, is, this was, is rural Cambridgeshire. This, well, this is rural Suffolk. This is where it really happens. This is the deep, dark wilds. And I, I would stand there at my little station where I had to break the corners because the corners are like melted together. It's really hard. And I had a little, um, like a like a metal bracket, and I'd have to jam the corner around to snap it. And this guy came up behind me, and he'd wrapped an iron bar in bubble wrap, and he just whacked me as hard as he could around the back of my, like, across my shoulders with it. It just completely decked me. And he justified it by saying he wanted to see if it hurt. And I was yeah. like, yeah, yeah, it really hurt. Thanks for that, yeah. Like whiplash for life. It was horrendous. So that was pretty scummy. Um, it was the smell that I remember most. They had this hot rubber tool it's like a big machine that goes into the edge of the window and fills the edges with hot rubber the smell of it was just like melting tires all day every day just eyes are just streaming noses on fire did you burn yourself no i never got burned i was never allowed on that machine i don't think i was old enough they let me on a bunch of other machines to see if i was any good and i wasn't obviously i was dreadful that's why they left me to break windows all day outside uh, but i met some met some characters there that i still know today and i still know around town and people i still see in the pubs and stuff so it was yeah. awful yeah really bad <laughs> Do you do you find that you grew up around around these people? I mean, you say that you still recognise people from those, yeah. from from that job. Would you see people? Do you see people that you worked other jobs with? Oh yeah, yeah, for jobs? sure. I mean, living in a small town, I've lived I've lived in Haverhill for most of my life, but I've also lived other places and been all over the show. But um, I feel like I kind of grew up on that industrial estate and in those pubs. So it's a lot of the same faces. You know, it's a lot of people. Some of them are starting to die now. Like, there's people dying in town. You get plaques in the pubs. You get a little plaque with your name on it. And I look around, and I'm like, ooh, I used to work with that guy. It's pretty pretty grim. Um, but, yeah, you know, you, you meet some complete lunatics, and you meet some nice people, and um, they all sort of stay around, better or for worse. But I went straight from the um, window factory to working for my dad doing Artex and Coving. 
you know, textured ceilings and cove and stuff. So I used to get up in the morning, go to the yard where all the guys would show up in their vans and load up. You'd get given your your day on a piece of paper, basically, and you either, like, were absolutely ecstatic because you had a really light day or you were just crushed because you knew you'd be at it for, like, 14, 15 hours. And then we'd load the van. I'd build, like a bed of Artex bags in the back and I'd sleep all the way to wherever we were going. So I don't know, what was that, like 16, 17, I guess. Um, and we'd get there and then it would just be like graft all day, go fill up two huge buckets of water, walk all the way across the building site, water's full of all those little spinny bug things, mix up like five buckets of Artex, keep feeding these guys that are just treating you like shit and calling you names all day and just learn how to be a builder, basically. <laughs> it was awful. How did you equip yourself to deal with that? sense of humor you just have to like take it all on the chin um especially if you're like a skinny pale ginger kid covered in spots like running around (laughs) no muscles to speak of just like constantly being uh tortured you have to you have to have a sense of humor basically and i had to get strong i had to get really strong to be able to do it you go up like literally 20 flights of stairs with you know 25 50 kilos of artex on your shoulder it was awful um but it was really fun i remember the thing i hated the most thing i really struggled with was the radio that just constantly played awful music all day every day and you'd have to just wait for that one blink 182 song or something just to get you through the day and it would be the one that they'd hate and they'd just turn it down as soon as it came on it was so punishing but yeah that was our texting throughout our time knowing each other i guess Mm. i guess it's coming up 10 years you've worked at a school was that the first job that you had that was a bit more dress nice and act yes yeah it was definitely my first proper job was working at a school in the town i live in in working in behavior so working with kids um who were you know exhibiting behaviors that the school didn't consider to be necessarily conducive to study (laughs) so i'd work with those kids to get them sort of on a program and you know trying to move towards the point where they could get something out of school that wasn't completely punishing uh, and that was great. That was um, I felt like I was given a lot of trust and I felt like I was an actual human for once. Like work till then for me had just been a systematic process of like dehumanization and feeling like I could make a difference was great. So that's why I've sort of stayed with working in schools ever since. I've worked at maybe four or five different schools. Um, and, I, you know, it's something I go back to a lot. You know, if I end up leaving for whatever reason to pursue music a bit more intensely or whatever, I'll always nine times out of ten come back and work in a school. And you, like... and you and you've got that relationship with them where they know what you're up to. You haven't really, have, well, have you hid from them that you go on tour and no, sometimes you might want to leave. I haven't really needed to. Um, in the past, I've quit jobs because I'm I, I need to go on tour for five six weeks, whatever, and um, it's pretty much understood that they're not going to have me back after that, uh, especially if it leads to more. You know, they have to be they're running a business basically, and it's in the best interest of the kids, but. Um, I don't have to hide what I do from my students or, or people I work with now because I'm at a sick form and, and those kids listen to music and know what it's like and they know what it's about and the teachers are fairly decent about it most of the time. Um, you get some funny looks and you have to explain to people why you do what you do sometimes, same as any job. Um, but yeah, it's it feels like quite meaningful work, working with kids, working through problems with them and, and trying to, again, make sure they get the best out of, you know, going to school in a pretty broken education system like trying to be the one that helps i feel like that's quite quite useful have you seen firsthand the effects of government cuts on education yeah we've had some absolutely absurd statistics like um you know 10 billion pounds cut from sixth form education in the last x amount of years whatever it is like the most absurd amount of money you could ever imagine um and it is rough yeah none of us i've never had a pay rise i've never earned decent money working in school Teachers are really struggling. Uh, numbers are absolutely bananas. Um, 
class sizes increase it's all the stuff that you read about it's all true it's all happening everywhere even in somewhere that's um you know on the outside as affluent as cambridge like i'm at one of the best sick forms in the country and you still see despite the industrious efforts of everyone i work with and how hard people really really pull it out the bag you still see a lot of struggle and a lot of cut corners yeah do you find yourself um, relating to the, the you know, the, the, the troubled kids? The oh, troubled constantly. Kids. Yeah, that's why I do what I do. Like, yeah. I, I work with a lot of really able kids, a lot of really smart kids who uh, are under a lot of pressure to do really well and go on to be, you know, medics and vets and academics, etc. Uh, but I also work with, you know, kids with a lot of really challenging behaviours and, and difficult home lives and, you know, tough personal situations. And that's what I love the most is when a kid comes to see me and says, I think I'm mental because, <laughs> and then you get to say, "Don't worry, you're not." Can you relate to that from your career? Let's call it a career because it mm. is a, your career in playing music. Because once you release a good record, once you release a record that some people like, mm. there is an inordinate about amount amount of pressure uh, for you to do better, and that is <laughs> yeah, that's overwhelming. Yeah, it can be. The thing that I find that that parallels a little bit the way I the way I relate to the kids is that. A lot of people forget, I think, that young people are literally that. They're, they're human beings. Like, you were a young person once. We were all young once. And the the closer you're able to put your mind to theirs, you know, Vulcan mind meld style, the, the more you remember and you understand what it's like to be in that in that place. And pressure is, feeling pressure is subjective, isn't it? A kid with, you know, a kid whose parents are splitting up who have to sit their A-levels versus, you know, some stockbroker on the train desperately trying to close some deal versus me going to work and putting out an album whatever all that pressure is subjective but everyone feels it to, to varying levels of intensity and I think the more you realize what I'm going through is what he's going through what she's going through the more you are able to relate and empathize and that makes life a lot easier also makes for storytelling yeah for sure yeah it all feeds into your experience of people and and you know the crux of every good story is is a human element is a human tale so the more you experience that i think that's why my work history has helped a lot you know i've worked in everything from warehouse to cleaning to building to education to sales everything in between and through all of that you meet such a diverse group of people such a huge cross section of society that that informs your your awareness of narrative and how that stuff works i find myself you know usually on the train or walking from a to b where I'm just completely drawn to looking in people's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, looking at people's faces yeah. and thinking, what are you doing today? Yeah. What's your life about? Mm-hmm. What are your problems? What are you bummed out about right now? What are you excited about right now? Yeah. And I love getting lost in that world. Yeah, me too. Imagination. That's what that is, isn't I it? I prefer getting lost in other people's lives than yeah. mine. And that's, <laughs> it's dangerous. <laughs> dangerous to get too introspective. I do that with houses constantly. If I'm walking around, especially somewhere like London or somewhere really densely populated, I'll look at houses and I'll just be like, who are these people? Like, what is your job? What is your life like? And it's mystifying sometimes. But I do the same as you. Yeah, I look at people on the train and I think, wonder where you're going. Isn't it? Isn't it tragic how we? it's so easy to put someone else's life on a plane higher than your own? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they're you, doing that to you. If you click into that, like, snap judgment mode, then you're constantly walking around, like, you know, pinning people in, in place. And I think that's really, really easy to do, but really unhealthy. It doesn't help you in that what we were just talking about, in that empathising, understanding other people's lives kind of way. It, it kind of screws you up a bit, I think. And perhaps so more poignantly than any other time is mm. when you go see a band and, yeah. you, and they're on stage and you think, wow, their lives are so fucking cool. Yeah, <laughs> You yeah. know, and, and you, you see someone on stage and... 
people are seeing you on stage yeah. thinking that guy's the best writer I've ever listened to. And I feel, yeah, I think what's really interesting is when you look when you get to a point where you've obviously been on stage a lot and you've seen a lot of shows and you look at people and you actually start to notice, oh, they're not having any fun. That's the worst thing for me is when I watch someone and I'm like, oh, you're having a shit day. Do you day. think you can see that because you've been that person? Probably, yeah. It's probably because I, you know, I feel like I'm quite astute and I'm a fairly decent observer of human behaviour. But when I see people on stage and it's, you know, abundantly clear they're having a shit day or a shit tour or something's not working for them, they're not getting into it. I've I've kind of ruined it for myself in that I spot that really easily. I'm like, oh God, this is hard for you, isn't it? You're just going through the motions. But that's when you give more back, don't you, as an audience, and you try and you know you try and sort of help build that vibe a little bit. Makes me think of bands like Mountain Goats or Weaker Thans, where, sure. you, where you're like, those singers are so uh, they're so autobiographical. These songs, in, yeah. in such you know, with such poetry mm. that if they're not feeling it, you feel a bit. what's happening here yeah I I always felt that about hardcore and metal bands to be honest I'd be like I used to look at Slipknot I used to be like I think Slipknot one of the most revolutionary and amazing bands ever but I'd look at them and be like what if you're just not into it that day like what if you're Corey Taylor and you just want to chill and listen to Bell and Sebastian and eat crudite and you have to go on stage and like vomit your guts up and be a psychopath and run around beating the living crap out of yourself for two hours in front of a million people that's just as demoralising as being a really shit struggling singer-songwriter and playing to no one every day. It must be just as hard to get up there and have to force all that aggression out and build up all that anger and perform as it is to, you know, show up and be obscure. And I suppose if you've been Slipknot for yeah. 25 years yeah. at this point, or no, yeah. 20 years, I suppose, at this point, mm. that in in the context of you know the uh, the career that you have and the stability you yeah. have you're probably not thinking about that much i can't see that i just can't see it being an easy life do you know what i mean i don't i don't look at any big bands and think wow that looks cool i look at it and i think that looks like such hard work yeah <laughs> you know even even bands that like pull it off and, and make it look easy or or don't have an insane and aggressive live show i look at them and i think god it must be hard to do that every single day you can't just keep on doing the same thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Even though you might have found that little key, yeah. few bands can find that one sound. Yeah, true. And kill it. Yeah, 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 I totally agree. And I think if you, that's where the risk of stagnation comes in a bit, isn't it? If you find like a formula and you think, oh, that's safe, that works, that sounds good, that makes me feel X. I think it's way more important to sort of push outside of that and try and find new territory and try and find stuff that excites you in different ways. If you look at the career of The Descendants, there's so much in there, do you know what I mean? Like, we're not even taking into account all, just the different, the variety. But there's also the same core element. It's the descendants of yeah. what of why you liked it. Absolutely, you listen to Somery and you listen to um, Hypercafium, You know, it's the descendants. It's right. got that core sound to it. But they are completely different eras of music. Do you know what I mean? And that and that band has grown and evolved and changed and progressed as musicians and gone through all kinds of stuff as people. And what you get out the other end is. You know, the best artists, in my opinion, channel all of that experience into their sound and their songwriting. And that's exactly what they do. And they do it better than anyone, in my opinion. One of my favourite bands ever. Do you find your best songs have been the ones where you sit down and you and you think, right, I'm going to write a banger? Or is it something that's come subconsciously? Because 
it's the kiss of death when someone tells you, okay, now you need a chorus. Right, right, right. L- well, You're luckily, never going to do it. I have no one telling me that, luckily, because it's just me on my own. And even if I play it to someone and they're like, oh, this needs this or whatever. But you, I, you, I have, you have a partner who's a, who's a fan and supportive. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. I, I mean, I play, I play my songs to very few people when I'm writing them. Obviously, Claire hears them because she's normally downstairs or in the next room. But she's, she's amazingly dry when it comes to giving me feedback. Like, she's extremely supportive. But she doesn't sugarcoat anything. She doesn't pull any punches. And she will give me short, succinct responses if I ask her something. That's so great. If I say, what do you think of this song? It, it's not a 20-minute monologue. It's it's either like, oh, it's good or, yeah, it's fine. Or, what do you know, something something very clipped. Um, but I find if I... I'm I'm a really long game writer. It takes me a long time to write a song normally. And the ones that I knock out quite quickly, I distrust, <laughs> which I know is bad. Yep. They're the ones that are normally more immediate for other people. But I, I've, you know, there's a song on this album, there's a song on Greyhound Dreams that took two years to write, basically. I just kept going back to it, like refusing to let it die. And they're normally the ones that I feel like a bit more of a hard-earned song, like that I've pulled something out, you know, and it's it's gone on gone on wax as a part of me. And the other ones that are knocked out, I feel like are much more emotional and much more spontaneous, and they have, a, you know, kind of a different function. Um but I rarely sit down and think I'm going to write a banger. I normally just sit down with a mood and mm. try and, you know, form something out of that mood. I've been listening to a lot of the kinks recently and, and trying oh, to write lyrics. I've been doing this new acoustic thing since you text me actually saying that you should do it and um, roped Bob into it. And yeah. we, we, we've, we've done some some stuff and I've been trying to write lyrics that aren't sort of just, you know, creating a, a, a whole world and rather you know i'm not trying to write lyrics that are could be about anything and nothing we'll yeah. write about something you know a, spe- a particular feeling of a particular day yeah and i've been listening to muswell hillbillies a lot by the kinks okay do you know that record no i don't know it. this is your cue to listen to it but okay. it could be about anything you know about having a having a cup of tea yeah and i think there's such joy in that yeah for sure i think that's the hardest one of the hardest things about writing lyrics is when you set out with a goal in mind and that's why i don't think you should ever shy away from it if you think to yourself i'm gonna write a song about boom that's the hardest song to write for me Mm. but i'm Mm. you know i'm different to the next guy and different to you and i think some of the best lyrics you've ever written are about the little things like when it seems to me like in your writing you had this moment where you were like oh life is actually about all of these little things in a row and you've focused so much like passion and joy on it's almost like a zen approach to songwriting if you ask me when i listen to your lyrics and how they've progressed it's like there is so much joy in that cup of tea making it sitting down drinking it and then going on to the next thing and you write so well about living in the moment it's something i've never really been able to nail down as well as you but that's something i love is sitting down saying right i'm going to write about this i really respect people who are able to do that Thank you. I I think that um, it's a it's a, it's a way to stay happy. <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know you know what I mean. Stay I, um, grateful. Yeah. Right. Mm. Right. Because it's so easy to think about that job interview that you didn't get. Exactly. Or yeah. tomorrow or yesterday. Think about all those dildos that and the next guy is going to be selling. <laughs> We're so obsessed with the past. Yeah. And yeah. that's really hard to get out of. Past, past and the future is where, where my mind is, unfortunately, <laughs> basically 50-50. I, I try so hard to live in the present and focus on now. Um, but sometimes there's a lot to be pulled out of that. You know, everyone that tells me, oh, you should read this book about positivity or you should read this book about living in the moment, 
you know, I just read a book called The Power of Negative Thinking recently just to see, like, yeah. if, like, the way my brain Research. is geared is, is you know, completely fucked and irredeemable or if there's some positivity <laughs> in there somewhere. And, there, you know, looking back, being really good at looking back, I think is just as important as being really good at living in the moment. You know, if you're able to discipline yourself and work to a point where you can you can comprehend the past in a way that doesn't crush you, in the same way that you can you can look forward and you can live looking forward in a way that's healthy, um, you know, if you're able to do it positively. A friend told me recently, it's it's quite easy to criticise someone who's being nostalgic in their lyrics or their oh, yeah. writing or, or, you know, when they're just hanging out. Yeah. But nostalgia is nice in the way that you recognise the things that made you feel good afterwards. Oh, absolutely, man. That is, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. You know, like you say, people tear down a lot of those gaslight lyrics or whatever that are like, you know, about the good old days and all that kind of stuff. And I think, sure, you can dump on that if you want, but... That that gave him a feeling at the time that he felt he had to nail down forever. There's right? a song on Sink or Swim that I've I've completely forgotten the name of it. Right. But it's about when he found out about the clash from when he was right. working at a bar or a restaurant yeah, yeah. or something. When he first heard Joe Strummer, that was. Yeah. 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 And um so he wrapped wrapped the chords around the lyrics yeah, yeah. the lines. And I think that's so amazing. It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. I mean that's literally just telling a story about the first time you heard or did something and the power and the emotion that came out of it you know i think i think everyone remembers the first time they heard the clash if they're geared up that way i remember it vividly and yeah to nail that feeling down and make other people feel it and make people go oh god i remember the first time i heard the clash it was incredible the reason why the clash makes me the clash make me feel so mental for the clash yeah. is because they're dancing tunes yeah but you listen to the lyrics and you're like these are smart Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is such a period of time. It's impossible to look at some of those lyrics sometimes. Because you just think, I'm never going to do that. But then you realise it's not about you. (laughs) Yeah, it's about about the clash. It's about everything else. Yeah, Or it's about about the world. It's about um, the conversations that you have, the things that you think about. It's not about the songs that you write. That's the the lamest. I totally agree. Have you been to the exhibit yet? No. Oh, it's amazing. I've seen enough photos of the bass. Yeah, (laughs) I've seen enough. I went went to that at the weekend and... It was it was such an emotional experience for me because the, the Clash has got such a massive part of my heart and I was walking around looking at handwritten lyrics. Do you know what I mean? And that blows my mind. I'm a very sort of tactile, handwritten kind of guy and when I see that stuff, it really, really... You know, I was walking around in tears, like, more than... Probably more than I cried at, like, the Imperial War Museum. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely amazing artefact. And part of me was looking at it thinking, like, all of this stuff behind glass, you know, fetishization of the past and, like... Why can't this stuff just exist in our hearts, et cetera, et cetera? And I had to kind of process the fact that these things need to exist. They need to be shown to people. They need to be just like any other artifact, just like any other thing in a museum. People need to see and feel this. And it's actually a really great exhibit for that, walking around. The best bit is you can there's a little four track and they've got London Calling playing on it and you can isolate basically oh, each, and you can just listen to the that vocal is, that's cool oh it's incredible i love isolating vocals and just listening to the, the way people sing and listening to joe singing on there because you can hear <clears throat> you can hear every breath so you can hear like you can hear all the little grunts and squeaks in between not just the vocal it's not like a clean mix it's really really you know really impactful to hear all that anger in between and all the build-up and strain it's awesome really really worth doing even living in london now it's so hard to walk around where we are now in soho and Think about what it was like in 77, 78. When you listen to those records, you get a picture. You get the smell. You get the sights. You know, you get the sounds. You're absolutely right. It's it's a sensory thing, isn't it? If you listen to Mag 7, you know, and you're you're hearing disco, you're hearing bebop, you're hearing, 
you know, rap sounds, you're hearing samples, you're hearing that culture clash coming together for the first time, you know, in that way with that punk edge. And I love walking around and trying to sense some of that and soak it up from the pavement and feel like, you know, that was genuinely like a musical revolution. Yeah. And you're right, Soho was part of the heart of that. And it's, it's a great place to walk around and feel, you know, feel that on your headphones. It's funny to think that Covent Garden and the Hundred Club on the Oxford Street yeah. <clears throat> was where some of the, the big things happened. Yeah, yeah, when things were a bit less sanitised and, you know, yeah. maybe a bit more... I mean, again, <clears throat> easy to be nostalgic about a time that you weren't in, but, like... This is it, right? Yeah, I look, I look back at grainy black and white pictures of that era and clothes and hairstyles and, you know, the sights and sounds, and I do think, whoa, that would have been awesome. I was on the train yesterday and I saw someone that was dressed like they were in 77. And my first reaction, and I'm a bit ashamed to say this, my first reaction was, check out this guy, <laughs> check out this person. Yeah. But the reality is like, no, you should dress how you want. You know, like we preach all these things about being yourself, but I still look at myself and think, are my friends going to think I'm an idiot for, for wearing this? Yeah, of course. I think it's crafting your, your image and your little place in the world is something that I don't think anyone really honestly takes completely for granted and takes lightly i think you make a conscious decision when you dress yourself don't you it's, it's one for some people it's one of the most important things you'll do all day is how you project outward how you sculpt yourself um and it's yeah it's pretty scary like i, I look at people like that you know the, the guys who are walking around like dressed like old punks bondage trousers and stuff and i think yeah you found something you're into um much rather that than hide it and pretend you're something else do you think you can find something in the world that will make you feel yourself or do you think you've already found it playing no i've always struggled i've never really felt like i've had a place uh, anywhere or anything i do really like when i work i always feel like um part of me is not really there do you know what i mean i always feel like um I'm performing more when I'm at work than when I'm playing music. And when I'm playing music, I don't always feel at home or like I belong either because I think at my heart I'm just a dirty punk and I don't really fit in anywhere. Uh, people always say I'm too punk for folk and too folk for punk and that's a bit of a cliche, but I don't really fit any genre and I don't really fit any bracket. And, yeah, I, I think part of playing music and part of you know everything I do that's even remotely creative is trying to find a place trying to find a spot do you think you fit in to the backstage world the the bigger gigs that you've done no god no (laughs) i'm absolutely awful at that i've had i've had a horror show with like backstage life like people from labels and publicists oh no i'm just i'm just awful like i go i go to shit man like someone tries to talk to me about business or about you know markets people say things i have to say i i honestly don't know what you're talking about if someone says like we've really got to hit your c markets and but i'm like i don't know what that is like talk to me like a human and i don't have any patience or tolerance for it because i have no respect for the music industry um so yeah like i'm not i'm, I'm not good at the decadence i'm not good at the late i'm not even good at late nights you know what i mean i'm not what, good at anything. what a double-edged sword yeah that presumably you want to play music for yeah. the rest of your life yeah but you hate being in the world where that's financially viable. Yeah, absolutely. And that is like just walking around kicking yourself in the dick all day, every day. Um, <laughs> but punk rock exists yeah. and independent promoters will exactly. always exist. Well, that's why Red Scare is so amazing. You know, you won't find a better label built on socialist principles run by a couple of people uh, mm. who wholeheartedly believe the only thing that's important is the music. You know, Toby's talking to me recently about how, um, how vinyl's awful about how making it vinyl is, is so yeah. bad for the environment Oil. that we shouldn't do it. And, uh, you know, how many record labels will say something like that out of, you know, 
that's kicking yourself in the dick big time, isn't it? That's why I love that's why I love Red Scare so much. Am I right in thinking he still sells a lot of CDs? Yeah, Red Scare still does CDs. I mean, Red Scare, I think, in terms of but they sell, not that he just manufactures them. Oh but, yeah, no, they, they sell. Yeah, sell. yeah, they sell. I mean, I still buy CDs. I have a CD player in my car, and I love listening to CDs. Uh, but again, that's personal preference, isn't it? I love that CDs still exist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, most people think they're garbage and they're a nightmare, but I, I still quite like CDs. That, but that's where my ideals align with that label is not just you know politically, socially, etc., but also the fact that we do walk around constantly punching ourselves in the face <laughs> in a lot of different ways. And Toby used to work at Fat Rec. Yep, Toby was at Fat for years, and that um, that was a big job. Oh yeah, Toby's uh, Toby's signed some of the biggest bands in punk. Toby's Toby's been part of. Um, you know the the exposure of those bands in really really formative and influential ways. So he kind of knows. He's got a nose, man. Yeah, he he knows, and he's got a nose, and he's got a sniffer. Yeah, he really has. I mean, he's at the moment he's living in Granada, in the Caribbean, just like sunning himself and drinking mai tais and sitting around, um, and running the label from, you know, from the Caribbean, which is pretty amazing. Right. Uh, I think he's going back stateside soon. Um, but yeah, yeah, Toby's opinion is one of the opinions in the world I respect the most. Um, and obviously, Brendan Kelly does a lot with and for Red Scare. And again, his his nose is absolutely, undoubtedly, perfectly attuned to you know what sucks and what's good. How did you meet those two? Uh, I wangled my way onto some shows with Brendan Kelly and Dan Andriano, and two I, people who. You were big fans of, are big, oh. you know, you are big fans of. But when we met each other, we listened to the Falcon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, you know, it was it was a big feeling. Well, we're talking two of my favourite songwriters of all time, easily. Like, yeah, top, definitely like top three, two of them are them. Um, and I, I wangled my way onto those shows and we just really hit it off. Um, just became pretty, pretty fast friends. And they knew that I was looking for a label to put the album out on that I hadn't even recorded yet. <clears throat> and I think Brendan was obviously talking to Toby on the tour and had his sort of antenna up for UK acts. And um, he pitched me to Toby. Toby said he liked it. And he rang me one day when he was completely wasted with Dave Hawes somewhere in a, I think it was in a toilet, because I remember him like hold, dropping his phone in the toilet or something. And I was like, this sounds perfect. I'm going to sign with these guys. <laughs> And uh, he said he was just like, well, you know, there's no money, and uh, we, we won't really do much for you. But uh, he's like talking himself down the whole time. <laughs> they did loads for me, and um, are an absolutely awesome label. So, yeah, I just said yes. I didn't ask any qu- again. Like terrible at business, I was like, yes, just yes. Whatever question you're asking me, the answer is yes. I'll do whatever you tell me to. And uh, yeah, been there since 2012 was when Storm came out. So yeah. Do you think that you've was that maybe a, a turning point? Did you take yourself a bit more seriously or something like that? When you have the faith of someone that you respect so much, did that in, in, in turn make you feel like this is a this is a step up in terms of professionalism? With a track record like Red Scares, you know, I was looking at their roster and I was looking at the Lillingtons and just thinking like, this is punk rock royalty. Like right. This is some of the most creative, fun, exciting music I've ever heard, all coming out of one place. And then when you trace Toby back, obviously, through, you know, his musical CV, I was just absolutely overwhelmed. And yeah, it gave me some responsibility big time. Playing solo, you feel like you're only ever really responsible to and for yourself. And and, and to a certain extent, the people that listen to your music. But as soon as I, you know, kind of decided, yes, all right, let's do this and had that chance and someone put their faith in me, I definitely thought like, OK, you have to 
you have to perform now. You have to do really, really well. And that's why I don't really, you know, I, I try not to fuck about. Like, I try and warm up a lot, and I try and put on the best show I can every time, and I don't take anything for granted. Like, if I'm touring in the US, I always think to myself, this could be the one and only time I get to play this venue. This could be the only time I get to do this. So I try and do it the best I possibly can. There's always, like, um, there's always stuff to look forward to, and there's always... Uh, there's always a reason to do to do your best. I think there's always way more of a reason to do to do well than to phone it in. Um, and part of that is people having faith in you and, and showing up. You know that's awesome. Do you feel that way about school? Yeah, big time. But a much heavier sense of responsibility um, in many ways because you're responsible for the welfare of of these young people that maybe don't have other people looking out for them, or you're just somebody that you know, you might be having a throwaway conversation with someone they remember for the rest of their life. You might give them a piece of advice that you take for granted because you're a fully grown human in the world that they've never heard. Or you might give them a perspective that they've never even considered. Or you might genuinely teach them something in a lesson that is really important to them. So, yeah, I think it's a heightened sense of responsibility. And it's obviously, um, you know, there's more of like a professional code of conduct, etc. So you do feel a bit more pressure in that respect. But um, music is a huge responsibility as well. And more, I feel more responsibility to myself than other people in that in that area. Given that advances, large advances, don't exist anymore, mm. um, and even when they did, you'd obviously have to pay it back. There are some great yeah. stories about these huge classic rock bands <laughs> yeah, that yeah, get back sure. from tour, from a huge tour, and actually have no money. Yeah, which is something that I've learned as I've got older slowly. Yeah. In looking to the future, do you think that there'll always be a side hustle, a side job for you? Well, I, I aside honestly, from yeah. playing music. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever um, be able to make a living out of playing music. Um, and I'm absolutely fine with that because I'm not the kind of person that ever thought I would. You know, I didn't come at this like a lot of people seem to, thinking like this is going to be my main thing. I want to be. Being a musician makes you insane. Like it's really, really hard. But at work. the same time, you have to give it your all to do yeah. anything to leave a scratch. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you, I'm sure you've given it your all at well, points. Uh, well, constantly, I feel like, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to give it your entire life. I mean. You know, it's that Charles Bukowski quote, isn't it? Um, if you're going to try, go all the way. Um, and I always used to read that and think, yeah, you've got to. But that's not it's not as simple in reality as just downing tools on everything else in your entire life and focusing on one thing. I don't think that's a particularly healthy way to live sometimes. And I think you have to give time to relationships and to family and to friends. And you have to find ways to make your life work, especially if music is consuming all your time and giving you no money back and no way to live. You know, I play a relatively obscure kind of music in a, in a you know, not world-changing way. So I, I knew from day one that I was never going to be able to pay the bills playing music. And I've navigated accordingly. I would love, I'd love to be able to do it more. I'd love more flexibility in time and stuff. Um, so I can say, like, right, I'm going on tour for three months and then come back and still live. Um, but I constantly work towards that. And I think in... In this day and age, you have to build a, a skill set portfolio, don't you? You have to be someone with a lot of different, um, a lot of different saleable qualities. And if you haven't got that, it can be a lot harder to just come back, go to a warehouse, grind it out for twelve hours, go home, go back on tour. That is a bit demoralising. So yeah, I'd love to be in a position where I could do more um, and be less like wrung out by it, and and still be able to play music. But again, being wrung out informs my music a bit. You know, a lot of my a lot of my songs come from places of being very, very tired. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, I embrace all of that, and I think it's all it's all very, very useful stuff. It's hard. It's, uh, you know, not the easiest way in the world to live, but it all has some use. Sam Russo, 
thank you for coming on 101 Part-Time Jobs. Thank you for having me. This has been an absolute raz. Love being in Soho so early in the morning. Brilliant. I've been working all day.